Hey everyone, just wanted to hop on here real fast before the episode begins proper. Let you know that we did have some audio problems during this episode, especially during the first 20 minutes. I tried to correct them to the best of my ability, but I'm not fantastic at it, so you may notice them. That being said, it is still a fantastic episode. We talk about the Smiths' debut album, and there's so much to talk about. So how much better could it get? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Smith's Cyclopedia, the most braggadocious uh, Smith's podcast on the internet. Uh, today, I have with me a very special guest. Austin, you mind explaining who the heck you are? I am Austin Curtis. I am in a band called Don't Get Lemon. I've been listening to the podcast uh, for the past couple of weeks and have been really impressed and wanted to be a guest on it. And uh, the pleasure and privilege is mine to be on this. Ah, uh, uh, no, the, priv- <laughs> the pleasure and the privilege is mine, I assure you. Um, yeah, so Austin reached out to me probably about mm, a few weeks ago at this point mm-hmm. and was like, hey, I really, really love the show. Um, you should listen to my band. And also, you know, if you ever need an extra guest on the show, and I was like, absolutely, immediately. Um Actually, that's not true. I took about a week because I had a super uh, a super busy schedule. But after that week, immediately. Then it was instantaneous. Yes. Um, and so, Austin, uh, as it's your first time on the show, I have a few questions for you. So, number one, obviously, like, why the heck are you here? How did you discover the Smiths? Um, so the Smith started for me at that vital time that is high school. So, um, I was introduced to the Smiths. My first experience remembering the Smiths was actually the wedding singer. Um, Ooh, all right. And in a very strange way, I feel like the wedding singer ended up, uh, dictating my music taste and personality, which is pretty messed up to think about, but... You don't have that sweet Adam Sandler perm that no, he had going on, though. <laughs> but that is my first memory of hearing the Smiths was How Soon Is Now? Because I remember, for some reason, my brother brought the soundtrack to that. And if you go back and look at the Wedding Singer soundtrack, it's filled with bangers. There's so many good songs on it. But How Soon Is Now on that was my very first like conscious memory of hearing the Smiths. And then I was reintroduced to it in high school and went back and went a little deeper into it and i bought the sound of the smiths compilation um and that i don't know if you're familiar with that comp but it starts with the single version of hand and glove with the uh the fade in and the harmonica Mm -hmm. and i just was immediately enraptured by everything and i just I was blown away by like the conversational nature of the lyrics where they're just so natural, but so poetic at the same time. So it was like phrases you would say in everyday life, but set to amazing music and with just kind of this wit to them that I thought was breathtaking. So from that moment on of having 
that compilation, it was obsession after that. And now I've been Smith's obsessed for, you know, the past 12 years or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, not gonna lie. I've never really liked that compilation, The Sound of the Mm -hmm. Smiths. Um, But I have grown to love it so much because I realized it wasn't just like the the sort of like uh record label compilation right. of uh the Smith's career, but it was this way that people were really getting introduced to like the different sounds of the Smiths. It wasn't like a best of yeah. it was like a far reaching catalogue, you exactly, know. Exactly, which I thought was interesting about it. And it's not like I would go and listen to the sounds of the Smiths now like it was the, my introduction to all of those songs, but now, like, let's say if I'm going to listen to uh, Hand in Glove, then I'm probably listening to it on Hatful of Hollow or the self-titled or, you know, what difference does it make? So I don't necessarily go back to that compilation, but as far as being introductory, it worked its purpose, which I'm sure was what the record label was thinking when they <laughs> put it out. Yeah, no, for real. Um, and of course, there's always that, uh, always that adage of reissue, repackage, repackage. Yeah, tacky badge. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I feel like I fall into quite a fair amount. Um, oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. We're all suckers for it. Even, yeah. even, you know, Morrissey sang the lyrics and how many, you know, reissues of albums he's put out <laughs> with, you know, stickers and tacky badges. So. Exactly. Um, all right, so my next question. What is your favorite song by the Smiths, and how did you kind of fall into it being your favorite song? Okay, so part of me wa- wants to say that the single version of Hand and Glove is my favorite Smith song, um, but we've just talked about that one, so I'm going to go 1A and 1B. That can be 1A. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1B, I'm going to go with a B side. I'm going to go Half a Person. Ooh, all right, all right. Yeah. Uh, 16 Clumsy and Shy is kind of a manifesto of Smiths fans that you're kind of perpetually this awkward, uh, bumbling person. (laughs) (laughs) And even when you feel like you're confident and later in life uh, and you have things figured out, you still feel like in your heart of hearts, you're still that 16-year-old that's, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and... Uh, just kind of fumbling your way through life. So I've always, uh, I've always connected with that song. But also another problem with listing a favorite Smith song is like you could ask me that tomorrow and I would say something else. Yeah, it, it, it's always different. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but what you were saying about like half a person as well, like I definitely took that mantra to heart. I was, I got mm-hmm. into the Smiths probably around when I was, 15 and so i remember just thinking like yes now i can finally say you know i am 16 clumsy and shy and whatever (laughs) the lyric (laughs) yeah and i was absolutely destroyed when i turned 17 and i could no longer longer put that in all of my instagram bio (laughs) or whatever you know right um but I mean, that's been going on since the '80s, you know. So yeah, well, I feel I feel like now that you brought Instagram bio up, I also have to give a special shout out to a funny song. I don't know if it's my favorite, but frankly, Mr. Shankly um, <laughs> is my Instagram uh, handle. Uh, I have bloody awful poetry 
um, from that song. So I've got that as my Instagram handle, and then I've got it tattooed on my arm. I don't know. You won't be able to see Ooh. it. No, but, we yeah. won't be able to see that. But I will. <laughs> I will have you like take a photo or something of it so that I can post about it on yeah. our uh, on our social media. So I feel like since I have bloody awful poetry, you know Jeff Travis's bloody awful poetry <laughs> uh, tattooed on my arm, I have to give a special shout out to Frankly Mr. Shankly, especially since it's a polarizing this song where it's kind of a Marmite love it or hate it. Hmm. No, for real. Um. Speaking of bloody awful poetry, by the way, my uh, my third question for you is, uh, you said, you mentioned earlier that you were in the band Don't Get Lemon. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like The Smiths has influenced your writing, both as like a lyricist and writer and as a musician? Oh my, I would not be, I think The Smiths are the, the one band that I can say I would not be the person I am now without that band. Uh, I think they've completely changed my life trajectory in every way that they've infiltrated every part of my existence. So obviously it comes through in the music and the lyrics. Um, As you had mentioned when we were messaging, Don't Get Lemon, uh, I sing with like an English accent and I don't think (laughs) I would be singing with that accent if it wasn't for... Morrissey singing in his Mancusian accent and getting into, you know, so many other bands after I got into the Smiths where they have their own uh, English accent. So definitely in that. And then um, I feel like even when I'm not consciously thinking about Smith's lyrics or Morrissey lyrics, they still, the, the phrasing of them and the conversational nature of them still find their way into my lyrics even when I'm not purposely like oh I want to write a song that sounds like the boy with the thorn in his side or something like that like somehow the lyrics still kind of always pop in and I especially feel like um before I was in Don't Get Lemon I was in another band called Funeral Bloom which sounds very different than Don't Get Lemon it is like an ambient black metal band (laughs) (laughs) but I took a lot of Smith imagery and put it into that completely different genre. So like that, our first full length album was called Petals, which was, you know, taking that flower like imagery of the Smiths mm-hmm. and putting that there. And I remember having lyrics like I won't share you and stuff like that in there. Um, even now with our latest song, Don't Get Lemon's latest song, Blow Up, um, which is very good, by the way. Thank you, thank you. The title of that song is taken from a 1966 swinging London movie, and there's a, a little Smith connection there. Is they used a still from that film for the 1992 reissue of How Soon Is Now. So even when I'm not totally yes. thinking about it, it connects in some way. <laughs> I I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I have that CD single. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I would love to find that at some point. But yeah, it's just kind of... And I have a shirt of that as well. I almost wore it today. I should have. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, it's like no matter what, it's like Smith imagery and lyrics just infiltrate, you know, every part of who I am. So it, it shines through in the music. And then also I sing with a, a bit of a baritone and especially on earlier Smith tracks, Morrissey kind of sings in a lower register at times. So I definitely picked up from that as well. 
Yeah. I I I 100% uh understand like you you just are so like ing- or this band is so ingrained mm-hmm. within you that it just makes its way. Um my fam when I first started getting into music, my family would often cite that their main criticism of my music was that I was doing a bad Brett Anderson of suede impression. That's good. <laughs> and to, yeah, honestly, it's it's kind of true. You know, I I really was, but I mean, it's what I it's what I knew. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to embarrass me at the dinner table like this. Right. But then it, that also um, kind of comes like back to the Smiths too, because obviously Suede was super influenced by the Smiths as well. Yeah, no, I I'm going to do a full episode just on like how Suede was influenced by the Smiths, because I think they've popped up in just about every episode that I've put up on here. Because uh, my my secondary goal with this podcast is to turn all of my like Smiths disciples into Suede disciples oh, there we as go. well. Yeah, make the conversion. Yeah, yeah. I was actually, the... I was actually <laughs> sorry. Thinking, go for um, it. Of I know at the end of all of your episodes, you have like the playlist recommendations and this and that. And I was thinking about mm-hmm. for my recommendations, I was gonna do maybe a Suede song because I was since we're doing this episode on the self-titled debut, I was going to do songs just from other self-titled debuts to go Ooh. with that theme. But then I ended up changing it. So we're not doing the Suede recommendation, but it's funny that it came up this early considering I was thinking about bringing <laughs> Suede up later. What can I say? I'm a telepath. You just knew. Yeah. <laughs> I believe we should probably get into our main topic. Right. We've gone... This is... I believe our 13th episode um and what better unlucky way than uh than that to talk about the smith's debut album all right austin i'm incredibly excited to talk about uh the smith's debut but i also feel this incredible anxiety we're like you know, I've kind of touched on a few elements, like, I've said, like, oh, you know, there's a hand in glove, and then another episode about, like, the Hacienda gig in, uh... The Troy Tate sessions leading up. Yes, the Troy Tate sessions. Now that we are at the full official album, this is the first time that this really get to show off what they're capable of doing on an LP, where do we start with this? Such anticipation around this album at the time. Just like you feel the anticipation for this episode. It's like everyone was feeling the anticipation for this album because after all of the hype, after the first couple of singles, Hand and Glove, This Charming Man, people were expecting this album to be a monumental debut album that was going to change the rock world, change British rock nor was it just the fans either that were that had this concept in their minds. Morrissey was going out there. I, I was just uh, watching an interview with him on the tube where uh, he says that he believes the album is going to be 
the the greatest thing that's mm-hmm. happened to British music, and he really does believe it's a masterpiece. I believe you've got obviously you, you, you've done very well with the last two singles, but I believe that you've got uh, LP coming out soon. Can you tell us about that? We have an album released on February the twentieth, and I really do expect the highest critical praise for it. It's, it's a very very good album. I think it's a signal post really in music. And all of this, uh, all of this new. Uh, new stuff that was weeks before the album was going to come out. Mm-hmm. And one thing about Moz is he always has self-confidence. He's always self-promoting at the beginning of an album cycle saying, this is the best one. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. So he was definitely playing up to the occasion that this was going to change everything. Do you think that by making sort of statements like that, people are going to start calling you really arrogant? You know? Yes, I do. But, you know, if you really have something and you're very sure of it, why hide? I don't understand that attitude. No, we're going to take as much as we can. And even the music press was kind of uh, really wanting this to be a monumental. So even though Morrissey and the Smiths had had their troubles with the press, there was a lot of journalists that really wanted this album to be this magnificent debut as well. And mm-hmm. I think also, I think it's kind of... Oh, I was also going to say it. that, uh, like we'd mentioned the Troy Tate tapes, and since they had to scrap that and record again, it ended up adding to the anticipation because they were originally pushing for a Christmas release for the album, and then it didn't come out until February. So people thought, well, if they're taking this long on the album, perfecting it, then it's got to be a masterpiece. Yeah. It's also very impressive for this band to about an album uh a year and a half after forming mm-hmm. like at that time especially you know like you still had to go through uh the, the rigmarole of you know playing building up an audience building up a large enough audience to get signed by a label that believes they can actually make money then they invest money into the album there's so much that goes into it whereas like Today, you can form, spend 10 days writing and recording an album and then release it by next Tuesday. No, it doesn't happen that way. But that's also like a, a strange thing about the 80s is like the connections were just different as well. It's where it's like, you know, their second ever gig, like Tony Wilson is there. You know what I mean? Like, so there's this immediate anticipation. And then, you know, Richard Boone, the manager of the Buzzcocks was an early champion of the band as well. So they had a lot of influential people on their side kind of from the get-go as well. So there was definitely uh, this anticipation that uh, this was going to be the next great British band. And there was a lot of people championing, championing them from early on. But then it seemed like there was already kind of that immediate hiccup of them doing the Troy Tate session, them listening to it back and just kind of being like, you know what, I don't know if this is good enough. So I wonder if they ever had a little bit of self-doubt or anything happened um, when they decided that they need to go in with, with John Porter and do the the second session. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a common uh, a common thing in music to have that like sense of are we good enough mm-hmm. um especially with your first album Absolutely. but then also like being told like what you initially recorded it's not it's not there like you guys you know you're fantastic and whatever but the product that you're pushing 
it's not it's not quite right um especially for a debut album when you have you've had your entire life to think about what this album is going to be like it's not like following it up and be like oh we did an album last year now we're going to do another one this year or something like that for mm-hmm. morrissey mar rourke joyce they've had you know 20 years to sit on what is my debut album going to be like what's it going to sound like so there's that sense of anticipation inside the self too where it's like is this going to be you know the album that i've always dreamed it would be in my head for sure yeah i think like i know that the beastie boys had something very very similar with um uh not hello nasty uh paul's boutique where they had just re-recorded it so many times to when it finally came out like even though the songs were great and they were incredibly influential they felt like they weren't quite what they wanted them to be mm-hmm. i think the smiths definitely had that sort of uh that sort of outlook on it a few weeks after it released yeah you know they that. championed it at first, like, this is the best thing ever. And then it was, it was shortly thereafter where they're like, yeah, maybe the production isn't as good as it should have been. Mm-hmm. And I think even even uh, John Porter, the producer of it, said the same thing. Where he's like, if we just had a little bit more time, if we had a little bit more money, it would have ended up sounding better. Yeah. We've talked a lot about, like, the production of... Uh, both the Troy Tate album and the John Porter album on the Troy Tate episode, mm-hmm. which I believe is episode eight. I could be wrong on that, but um, I think it's not. Uh, I think it's not wild to say that it is kind of. It's just not as well done as some of the other Smith's albums and Smith's works. And I I mean, like Mm -hmm. it's not even like, Oh, you know, John Porter never should have been behind the control desk or whatever. Cause he produced, uh, he produced this charming man. How soon is now all of the Smith singles Nick's like one or two. And he is also just kind of an interesting character as far as the dynamics of the band, because he took Johnny Marr, under his wing, which obviously made Morrissey, being the jealous person he is, mm-hmm. very jealous that John, that A, was, Johnny was giving attention to him and that Morrissey maybe wasn't getting the attention. And John Porter and some of his Roxy music ties uh, started some of Ma- Morrissey's paranoia as far as Johnny working with other musicians. Yeah. Because then... Uh, there's a bit in Morrissey's autobiography where he talks about going into the studio one day uh, to check how things are going. And then Brian Ferry from Roxy Music is in there listening to songs with Johnny Marr and Morrissey's like, what's going on in here? Like a spurned <laughs> lover. Like, <laughs> yes, he finds he finds them on, <laughs> under the covers and, you know, yeah, cl- clutches at his pearls. So, and I feel like, yeah. And it's also interesting with with John Porter and his Roxy Music connection because he played bass on an album that was very influential for Morrissey, which is For Your Pleasure. So I think he kind of came in very intrigued by like, ooh, you know, this guy was on one of my favorite albums. And then after a while started to get really annoyed with uh, John Porter and Johnny Mm -hmm. Marr smoking weed and playing with guitars all the time. Um, (laughs) However, like, despite all of the 
troubles during the production of the album and what has been said after its release, it's still... It is a landmark album. It definitely changed a lot of... Uh, yeah, a lot of music at the time. Um, and it shows how song, how strong the songs were as well. That even though they weren't completely happy with how it ended up sounding, the songs themselves were oh, yeah, so no, strong that sure. it still has that um, lasting effect. Radio X, uh, I believe, in twenty twenty. Yes, they uh, they claim that the Smiths debut is the most underrated Smiths album. I think that could be fair. I think you would have to put uh, that or strange ways Mm -hmm. as kind of the under underrated too. Uh, At the same time, I couldn't say that the self-titled or strange ways are either my favorite Smiths album. I would say they're both kind of three and four. I think Meet, and, Meet is Murder and Queen is Dead are a bit stronger. Mm-hmm. I'm a Meet is Murder number one fan. I think that's also just trying to be a contrarian because <laughs> you don't want to say the Queen is Dead is your number one right. because that's the, the obvious I, one. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, like, a lot of people a lot of people do. The Enemy named it the number one greatest album of all time in 2012, I believe. Yeah, and it's a great album, yeah. but I don't... Th- I wouldn't say it's a perfect album as as much as I, mm-hmm. I love that album. Uh, there's some weak parts to it. But uh, with this album as well, I feel like, as you've said, it kind of gets lost a little bit because people consider Queen is Dead to be the you know critically acclaimed masterpiece and Meet is Murder and then Strange Ways as the farewell. So as far as debut albums it it does kind of get forgotten about its times cuz it's maybe not like the stone roses yeah. debut where that was it you know what i mean whereas like that was the album they 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 yeah, improved no, absolutely with each absolutely a bit um and i think part mm. of the reason why the debut has the reputation it does is because of hatful of hollow which you know i is personally probably like my favorite Smiths album if we're including like the compilations um because I think it has like all of those very very strong songwriting uh songwriting points but the fan but the band feels more natural for like the the singles that came out after the debut they're like they're better done the ones that the songs that did come out on the debut they're like John Peel sessions, so they're a little bit less formal and they don't feel like they have this weight to them. Yeah. Relax to them, yeah. And even the band and bands have said that some of the versions of the songs that are on the self titled, the definitive version of that oh, song yeah. is actually the Hatful of Hollow version. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure as we get into the individual songs a bit more, we can talk about which ones people consider to be stronger on Hatful of Hollow. Or there's even some people that say Troy Tate versions of certain songs were actually stronger than what ended up on mm-hmm. the album. You know what? Why don't we just get into it right now? I, I don't think we should spend a whole ton of time on each track, but let's go through the track listing. Sounds good. So starting off, we got uh, Reel, Reel Around, around the, the Fountain. fountain. Yeah. Yeah. 
which I feel like is an interesting way to start your debut album that everyone is highly anticipating. Because um, I feel like, like we were talking about ways that people get into the Smiths, this might be one of the first songs that they might listen to because it's track one of the debut album. Mm-hmm. So maybe after you've heard one of the more popular songs like There Is A Light or How Soon Is Now or This Charming Man, and you are interested and you want to get into this miss, you might start track one, album one, which would be this song. And I feel like it's kind of interesting because it's not necessarily a manifesto song for the Smiths in the same way like the first single Hand and Glove is. Or let's say you were to get into the Smiths and you're going to go track one of the critically acclaimed album, The Queen Is Dead. That's also a bit more of a grand, you know, big sounding song. That's a bit more of a manifesto. This one is kind of mid-tempo, stays at kind of the same pace for a lot of it. Um, And it doesn't necessarily jump out at the listener on the very first listen. Yeah. Uh, This this was also considered to be uh, maybe the second single where they released Hand Hand and Glove and it was between this or This Charming Man. And they were worried about some of the backlash they had received from Handsome Devil previously about some of the lyrical content and the pedophilia imagery. And since this song has the line, Child, they were worried about some backlash. So Jeff Travis pushed This Charming Man which was a stroke of genius. Yeah. You made the right call. No, <laughs> for sure. Like even I think it was just like a, re- a rehearsal room uh, thing that Jeff just kind of walked past and immediately said like, no, mm-hmm. no, 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 we're shelving, we're shelving real around the fountain. We're doing this charming man. And frankly, I think mm-hmm. that was the right call. Real around the fountain doesn't really work as a single, but I do love it in this opening no. spot uh, because yeah. I love. Uh, I love the idea of like uh, the opening track of any album. It welcomes you into the world of that album, and so you've got like right. the, the drums, the boom, boom, ch, boom, 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 ch, boom, 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 ch, ch, boom, ch. and it's like all right. And then Morrissey coming in with "It's time the tale was told." Like, ooh, all right. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm sitting down. I've got popcorn. I yeah, I'm gonna tell yeah. you the story. I, I I love that sort of like welcoming like darkness almost of how you took a child and you made him old. And for Morrissey being, you know, so into literature, it sounds like the first line of a yes. novel. You know, it's time the story was told of how you took a child and made him old. And also, this is an interesting song, as you said, that it's an introduction into the world of the Smiths. And this song has the uh, most blatant line taken from, taken from A Taste of Honey, which is the fell out of bed twice, mm-hmm. dreamt about you last night, fell out of bed twice. So you're getting that, inter- that early introduction into Morrissey's literary idols with Sheila Delaney and A Taste of Honey, maybe being number one on that list as far as lyrics that he pulled. Yes. Um... And I feel like it introduces you to the lyrical style of Morrissey very early on. This sort of mm-hmm. uh, cut, copy, and paste lyricism where he's mm-hmm. like 
these lines that you know he loves and he kind of just weaves them together like i imagine he has them all pinned up on like a ru- on right. like a bulletin board in his room and he just takes one off and he pulls it in he goes this will be really good right here and then later on right here in the song and he's kind of just amalgamating it all together like uh he's painting like small small vignettes around the story almost yeah and it's like you can tell that he has certain lines in his head where he's like oh i'm gonna use that i'm gonna use that i'm gonna use that and then he fits them together a bit like a puzzle piece because another um especially on this first album another big source of inspiration for him was the feminist film theory book popcorn oh yes i forgot about this so yeah so he takes a lot of lines from popcorn venus and the title reel around the fountain comes from a phrase that um is in that book he also uses i think it's from rape or from reverence to rape uh which is another feminist film theory book um and he takes a certain line from there it's the pin and mount me like a butterfly uh comes from that book where they're talking about the film the collector which then comes up later because he uses a shot from the collector as the single cover for what difference does it make the Terrence stamp one mm-hmm. that then eventually has to get replaced by Morrissey holding the glass of milk. So those two film theory books as well seem to be really, really um, integral for this album. And also this song introduces a lot of the lyrical themes that come up throughout this album. So as far as an introduction, it's a decent introduction because a lot of songs on this album talk about that loss of innocence or not being ready for sex or the act of sex turning Morrissey into a man, things like that. Yeah. In, in like, not even in a way of, like, uh, the sort of machoistic, like, oh, you know, this is the day when I become a man. No, yeah. he's he's mortified of these things, yeah, you know? Yeah, he's not going out to conquer. <laughs> no. He's the prey. Yes. You are um, the quarry. and you will be mined yeah so it's like it's actually interesting too considering the feminist film theory aspect of it because morrissey kind of flips the classic dynamic on its head where a lot of these songs it's the female that is the predator the one that is initiating x obviously there's also songs where it's male and male or that as well but there's definitely kind of a recurring theme on certain songs of the female being the aggressor and the male being the one that's like, oh, no, I'm not ready. I don't know if I like this. Let's just, you know, cuddle and talk about mm-hmm. love. And then it's the female that's like, no, like, I'm going to take what's mine. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, the same thing with the album cover as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I think... I think I might have mentioned this in another episode, but Morrissey wanted to use this very like um, sexually con uh, yeah. this image with sexual connotations of like uh, male nudity, mm-hmm. not because like he wanted to be incendiary, or maybe he did. I mean, it is it is Morrissey, I think but because he wanted to push, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But because he wanted to push back against, like, 
this idea of the like of the female body put mm-hmm. on display for men to buy people's records yeah. he didn't want that and it's he, it's funny because it kind of comes he, back to roxy music in the 70s because they kind of had the iconic sleeve of the 70s whereas like the roxy girl image um mm-hmm. of the beautiful women to sell the record and again yeah the smiths turned that on its head and flipped the roles and did you know the male version of it the male mm-hmm. as me and- Yes. Um, and so we get all of just in this tight little track. I, I, I love Rail Around the Fountain. I also have to add in really quick. I like the story about Andy Rourke taking back the hand and glove single to his dad. Like, see, I made yes. I made this album. And he's like, you know, that's a bloke's bum. And he's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really have anything to say after that. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was good. I also think the... Uh, the cover of the self-title is interesting as well because it's from a Warhol movie and Morsi's never really expressed, he's never been like a big Warhol fan. So it's interesting that he took that, that imagery, especially considering the Smiths was kind of revolting against Americanization. A lot of the cover stars were very Northern. Very British. Yeah, very Northern British. Um, so it's interesting that he took that kind of New York imagery. But then again, I actually didn't. I knew that the still was Joe D'Alessandro and is from Flesh and it was a Warhol production. But a little bit that I didn't know is that it was directed by Paul Morrissey. So that yes. probably might, you know, add to why it, it could was be picked. a little tongue in cheek <laughs> reference. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was I was listening to an interview that Morrissey did. Uh, for Earsay in mid-1984. Um, I, I believe it was this interview. And Morrissey basically says, you know, like, I never wanted to necessarily be associated with the whole Warhol scene. It was never something that particularly appealed to me. Mm-hmm. But I felt like the power of this image, it just had to be the, uh, it had to be, the cover of this yeah, album. Morrissey is a master of aesthetic, and I feel like he doesn't necessarily get the credit for it. He deserves sometimes as far as the imagery of the Smiths and how influential that was. Because even the brilliance of cutting that scene to what it was, because I'm sure you've seen the full image where it's like, yeah, the full, where it's yes. a lot more suggestive than um, what the album cover is of just D'Alessandro crunch, uh, Kneeled over, hunched, hunched over. over, yeah. Where on the other side of the image, you get the guy laying back and licking his lips, and it's even more suggestive. So I even feel like it's a stroke of genius to do that, that cropping, mm-hmm. where it's like it it leaves it a little bit more to the imagination, you know what I mean? And then you see the full image, and it becomes even more suggestive. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um. So let's let's talk about now that we've been welcomed in to this world, the art and the words and the and the very gloomy music, the very gloomy music. <laughs> I mean, you've got like some dark drums, but the, the yeah. guitars, they really shine on this oh, next yeah. one. Uh, you've got everything. I got to give a shout out to the bass line by Andy Rourke on this track is phenomenal as well. The mm-hmm. unsung hero of the Smiths, in my opinion. Andy Rourke, 
And uh, definitely this is where they kind of let their hair down, so to speak, as far as the album goes, where you get the introduction and Reel Around the Fountain, and then this one just goes straight in as far as it being a bop. And it hits on a lot of the same uh, lyrical themes that we're going to see throughout Morrissey's career as a lyricist, where he's got a bit of arrogance to him in this song, where it's mm -hmm. like, I would win and you would lose, you know, back at the old grade school, to where you can tell he's got these images in his head of being, you know, this special person that deserves good things to happen to them. But then at the same time, it's played along the fact of, oh, I've made a terrible mess of my life as well, to where it's like he falters or he switches in between this narcissism and this self-deprecation, and you see it constantly in this song. Yeah, I think another great highlight of that same principle is in the uh, the line that he uses and then changes up. No, I've never had a job because I've never wanted one. <laughs> yeah. And then later on, so no, I've never had a job because I'm too shy. I'm like... too shy to go and ask for an application. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I, I, I think definitely like uh, if Reel Around the Fountain establishes the tone mm -hmm. of the album, I think You've Got Everything Now definitely, uh, definitely addresses the uh the plot lines yeah. of the and album it's if also you will. kind of the introduction to the humor of the smiths as well because like obviously mm -hmm. those last lines that you quoted they're pretty funny if you take them at face value and you're just like oh he doesn't have a job because he's lazy or he doesn't have a job because he's too shy then it's not as funny but when you think about kind of the black comedy of the smiths like i've never had a job because i've never wanted one i've never had a job because i'm too shy to go and ask for one it's pretty comical, and you, that's something that's overlooked a lot of the time about the Smiths when, you know, they've been coined with the miserableism, is that mm -hmm. a lot of them are tongue-in-cheek, and a lot of the lyrics are actually supposed to be funny. They're not supposed yes. to be taken completely seriously. Or even if they are yeah. taken completely seriously, there's still a humor to the fact that there's this person that is too shy to go out and get a job. <laughs> of course, it doesn't help much with the whole miserableism um miserableism tag that the next song after this is named miserable lie yeah, exactly and then obviously heaven knows i'm miserable now so there's that as well but yeah uh yeah also quickly about you've got everything now it also is the first um kind of the introduction that you see or not the first but it carries on from this charming man of like morrissey's like sexual attraction that has to deal with cars or so i want to be seen in the back of your car or like this charming man obviously the leather runs smooth in the passenger seat that there's something erotic mm -hmm. for him about cars yes no there, there definitely is which is amazing for somebody that doesn't have a driver's yeah, that, license that didn't drive you know? for a long time <laughs> yeah um but let's uh, let's talk about Miserable Lie. So the the punk Miser song. <laughs> yes, the punk song. Um, I think Miserable Lie um, is an interesting choice for the album. Mm -hmm. Like even compared with like all of the other recordings that the Smiths uh, that the Smiths did in this period, I think most people would generally say that Miserable Lie isn't uh, isn't super strong. Mm -hmm. It's 
I think... Sorry, I go like, for it. I feel like it starts off pretty well, where it's, like, pretty chill, and then it gets into the D-beat, and then you're like, all right, where are we going with this one? And, it, yeah, it's got mm-hmm. that galloping D-beat to it. also has maybe some of the most unhinged Morrissey falsettos as well. That is true. (laughs) And unhinged is absolutely the right word, you know, both in both in terms of uh, of mental stability and also just like him being able to stay on that note. Mm -hmm. He he just he has like, you know, that root note and then he just kind of goes all over the place with it. It's definitely um definitely a song where you can kind of tell maybe what they're going for with like the wall of sound because i know that they were definitely influenced by phil Spector and the girl groups in the wall of sound so you can tell that they're maybe mm-hmm. trying to go for that that wall of sound where it's chaotic um but then as we've talked about previously with some of the problems with the production of the album i don't know if it necessarily hits the way that they had maybe initially envisioned it all coming together. Yeah. I think this one, especially like a lot of this album flows very similarly for me. Mm-hmm. And I think they were looking for something that really like changed it up a little yeah, bit, you know, change of pace. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's as much as I really have to say. There's a whole, uh, actually, no, actually I do have one more thing. Wally range, uh, Wally range is regarded as a typically, uh, a sketchy part of Manchester where Mm -hmm. like you, you don't really, uh, you don't really go there unless you're up to shady business. It's not necessarily like, uh, how we would consider Detroit, but how we would consider, you know, that one part of that one part of downtown where you know that you could find somebody waiting for you at a right. street corner. If... Or it's like, maybe not go there. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, I guess he briefly lived in Wally Range as well. And he says it's very brief, but he maybe lived there with his good friend, Linder Sterling. And there's theories that this song is maybe about her. Don't know how true it is. Maybe some kind of unrequited love towards her so no that's interesting i i've always thought of this song as this sort of like um as the reverse of that Mm. where um you know there is this this person that that wants morrissey carnally and um morrissey of course is is not about that (laughs) Um, no yes and so like uh he just feels so inadequate. Like he knows that everybody else around him is obsessed with sex, but he's a country mile behind the world. Right. That uh, he's just not prepared mm-hmm. for this onslaught of sex. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Now I have, now I've said my piece about, uh, about miserable lie. And this is like, I, I mentioned earlier, some people consider, the Troy Tate versions of the songs better or definitely the Peel sessions that end up on Hatful of Hollow. And I have to agree that with this song, I actually do think the Troy Tate version outshines the self-titled version of it. And I definitely feel like the Peel version is better as well. Yes. 
The Troy Tate version has a harmonica on it, does it? Doesn't it? it uh, or is I that the think peel? It might. Or there's another. There's another song that has the harmonica on it. That's not on the self-title, but it is included. Uh, Hand and Glove, obviously, but I feel like there is another one. I mean, there is Still Ill on Hatful of Hollow. Yeah, I think that's probably what I'm thinking of. Still Ill has mm-hmm. the harmonica on there. But yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, I guess in terms of, you know, maybe that. Pretty Girls Make Graves, do that. Yeah, as the, the, the lyrical themes continue on especially in the first half of this album where again this song hits on a lot of the same things where we've talked about the switching of typical gender roles as far as um the male being kind of the target of sexual attraction or the one being prey and literally in this case that pretty girls are going to kill you in the end (laughs) Yes. Definitely a lot of sexual failure, again, in this sexual inadequacy. Mm-hmm. That victimhood as well, that nature played its trick on me. And this is also kind of another one where another typical theme that comes up is kind of that mentality versus biology debate mm-hmm. of nature and nurture, the mind and the body. So this is also introduced in this song as well. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I I think this one is always a weird one for me because, I mean, for as much as, for as much feminist literature as Morrissey had read, this is a song that I think most, that a lot of people could point to and say, like, are we sure that Morrissey is a feminist upon, like, first listening to it? But really, I think it just goes back to the same themes of Miserable Eye, the same themes of You Got Everything Now, of, like, it's the inadequacy of it. And, like, feeling like he doesn't want to be pressured into something, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And even um, the line, Pretty Girls Make Graves, apparently comes from Jack Kerouac's book, The Dharma Bums. And the lines is said by a certain person where it's like pretty girls make graves. That's why I'm celibate. So this could be a very early celibacy yes. anthem as well. Yes. For Morrissey. In- interviews around this time as well. Um, I believe one that he did with like good morning Britain or something like that. Um, they ask mm-hmm. him, you know, if he wasn't a singer, you know, what would he do? And he just laughs and he says, I think I would be a woman. that's pretty Um, good and he he basically just says like you know i i just think that you know they are uh they're generally more of like what i value and like what i think i exemplify not so much Mm -hmm. this sort of macho machoistic uh thing that men are often associated with and so i Right, and we see a lot of that gender bending with Morrissey lyrics of songs written from female perspectives as mm-hmm. well. And so I think, like, what I was saying about, like, upon initial listening to the song, it could be taken as kind of misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Understanding Morrissey and understanding that his humor is very dry and he does have this almost, like, uh, 
almost downtrodden wit to him. Um, this song is 100% just a joke. Like it, it's a mm-hmm. retelling of a strange weekend he had or something <laughs> like that, you know, uh, right. that after all of this, you know, affair and, you know, uh, decisions and like angst that at the end of the day, she goes off with another person. Right. That feeling of just kind of that inadequacy and that life is passing you by and your romantic interests are going to find somebody much better than you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I also think an interesting bit about this song is that the very last line of the song, The Sun Shines Out of Our Behinds, is then the opening song to Hand in Glove. Mm -hmm. Or the opening lyric. Yes. But it's kind of interesting because they didn't put... Track listing wise, they didn't decide to put the songs back to back where it's like you end with the lyric and then begin the next song with that lyric. You have to wait a little bit for the lyric to return. Yeah, I think, granted, this album wouldn't have come out for another year, but Kate Bush does something very similar in uh, The Hounds Mm -hmm. of Love where like she'll sneak in other lines, like snippets of her vocal into like other things like Waking the Witch or something like that. Yeah, and it's. I feel like that's pretty cool as far as the feel of an album goes because then it feels more like one big piece of art compared it's, to 12 little pieces. Mm-hmm. It's cohesive. Yeah, definitely. This song was also almost considered to be the third single. Instead, it was What Difference Does It Make? But this was in the running for the third single. Don't remember why they decided against it. I think they, again, they made the right choice. What difference does it make? Mm-hmm. Was probably stronger option. I think it was also Morrissey that was arguing for this one. He was arguing for Real Around the Fountain as the second, and this is the third. And as much of a genius as Morrissey is, he is prone to the odd stinker of an opinion every once in a while where he's very much wrong. And I definitely think yes. cooler heads prevailed on the choices for the singles. i i definitely agree i think morrissey really wanted to make statements you know hand in glove was his statement (laughs) to the The world then but then by the time it got around to what difference does it make he was just like well you know i've already said that so many times i've sang it so many times in concert Mm -hmm. you know the world needs to be exposed to uh to the fact that pretty girls make graves um but we don't have a ton more time to talk about all of that, so let's go on to uh, The Hand That Rocks the Yeah, Cradle. one of the first two songs written by Morrissey and Marr when they first yes. started jamming. So the lyrics are pre-Smiths, so these are lyrics that Morrissey had had in mind for when the day that somebody randomly knocked on his door to start a band. So mm-hmm. he had had these in mind for a bit. Um, I also saw... As far as when him and Johnny were together face-to-face trying to form this songwriting partnership, they didn't know each other. They'd met previously, very briefly, at a Patti Smith gig. So they're trying to form that kinship with one another. So Johnny Marr uh, used the arrangement of Kimberly by Patti Smith to form this song. So where they kind of felt that, that common ground with each other to be on even footing so to speak so even though the song doesn't sound necessarily just like kimberly if you kind of listen to the chord arrangement you can hear it a bit 
Yeah. Especially, like, with, uh, with more stripped-back versions mm-hmm. or earlier versions. You can hear that a lot yeah. more. I think in, uh, in, ooh, I want to say mid-1983 or maybe even late-1982, um, they go into the studio with Dale Hibbert to just try to, you know, yeah, get some of these tracks down. Yeah, and Hand, uh, Hand That Rocks the Cradle is one of the tracks that has survived mm-hmm. today. And I think you can see a lot of that early Kimberly. Yeah, definitely. It. And it's fitting that their common ground would be Patti Smith, considering that they initially met at a Patti Smith gig. Also, just given the fact that their band is called The Smiths, adds a little something to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um Lyrically, again, like this first album hits on a lot of the same stuff where this is another song about innocence, uh, another song about the loss of innocence, particularly. And this is a song that brought a lot of controversy to the Smiths as far as claims of pedophilia, with just given the nature of the song, the hand that rocks the cradle talking about kids. And it definitely... um, Stroked a lot of controversy with, like we talked about, Handsome Devil had a bit of it. We'll get to Suffer Little Children, which is obviously has loads of controversy to it. But uh, Morrissey himself um, did experience a little bit of sexual abuse when he was younger. When he's talking about his autobiography, or in his autobiography, he was talking about a PE teacher that he had that had inappropriately touched him so i don't know if that was maybe partially inspired the lyrics or if he was thinking of something else it's also a weird uh morrissey lyric in the fact that it's the most surreal as far as images go um there's a lot of weird stuff going on lyrically in this song it's surreal it's dreamlike it's oblique um a lot of strange images images to where it's not the typical um morrissey lyrics so you can definitely hear him trying to find his feet a bit as a songwriter with the song which makes sense considering this was one of his first songs written i think this song always exists in my mind as a sort of curse to lullaby yeah definitely um, and not not much else in the smith's canon uh especially outside of this first album really occupies that same space yeah i would say maybe reel around the fountain and suffer little children do but yeah not much else there's a sleep as a suicide lullaby <laughs> i guess that's true yeah, yeah that, that yeah but yeah definitely um, with this song as far as like you said like the fact that it's talking about you know a kid in a cradle and that parental protection as well like you know parents trying to protect this kid from whatever it is that Morrissey's talking about. Because like I said, this is a tough song to really um, try to find meaning in as far as compared to other Morrissey songs, where this one's not very on the nose as far as what he's talking about, what the kid needs to be uh, protected from. Yeah. There's there's a billion and a half interpretations of this song, I think. Um, On an old Smiths podcast that I did, uh, called This Charming Smith's Cast uh, with the Handsome Hooligans that I did with my dad and our family friend, Mark. 
we have like a 20 minute conversation <laughs> about what the what heck this, this song could possibly be about. mean. Yes. I don't know. Um, There's blood on the so cleaver. It... I don't know what happened, but. <laughs> mm hmm. Um, but definitely go check that out for more of that analysis. Maybe I'll link it uh, in the show notes. Um, let's move on real fast. This is a little bit of a discrepancy between the UK and the US version. This Charming Man. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I feel like This Charming Man absolutely fits in this album, and I prefer to listen to it with this album, but it was not originally released as a part of the track listing, and so, as such, we we won't really touch on it uh, as much here. Uh, but... Yeah, I think it's a fantastic track, obviously. Oh, yeah. You know, it was the Smiths hit, and it was excluded from the UK album because they felt uh, there was a philosophy at the time that you didn't include mm-hmm. the hit on your album, that you should you should save that to be its own especially, special. Uh, the especially US, since the, the Smiths, they didn't care. Uh, the single was very near and dear to Morrissey and Mars Hart where they really liked the idea mm-hmm. of the standalone single. They wanted to be a singles band. So maybe with the triumph that was this charming man, they wanted it to be standalone. But yeah, with the like you mentioned, with the U.S., they're like, stick that bad boy on there. We got to sell some records. <laughs> yeah, Same no, thing happened with uh, Meet His Murder, um, with How Soon Is Now is included on only the U.S. version, mm-hmm. while the U.K. does not have it. Yeah. How soon is now? I think is a different story in my mind. Where I'm like, ah, I don't think it really fits. I, on I will Disney, agree with but that. I think this yeah, charming. I man. do think of this charming man as being on the self-sidled. Where I, I agree that I don't consider how soon is now a part of Nita's murder. So, bypassing this charming man, uh, we get to still ill. Which, if there is any like Smith song that I would say is the quintessential Smiths experience, um, it is still ill. Like it hits. Almost everything. Morrissey's, like, arrogance, uh, Johnny Mars, absolutely amazing mm-hmm. guitar work. Uh, how the how the band and especially the rhythm section just Locked functions in. together. And then you've got you've got all of these themes as well in the lyrics, like uh, I decree today that life is simply yeah. taking and not giving. So we've got England that is mine sort of uh, glass. <laughs> yeah, England is mine. Owes me a living. So we've got this sort of uh England is mine both nationalist yeah. <laughs> and anti-nationalist at the same time you've got uh this sort of glass half empty view of life um under the iron bridge we kissed um yeah this sort also, of sexual just, thing yeah, you, you get a bit of the the Morrissey arrogance there too where it's like the world owes me a living like I should be a big giant pop star in everyone's mm-hmm. walls <laughs> yeah um and but yeah the iron bridge as well yeah it's the cultural it's an, landmarks it's essential the cultural yeah. landmarks of the smiths yes yeah i have been to the iron bridge Ooh. Uh, i i went uh the very first time i went to manchester i went and saw morrissey's child at home and then yeah the the iron bridge is right around the corner from it and it's filled with uh Smith's graffiti and people writing their little messages on there. Uh, my personal favorite was somebody wrote, wrote that Mike Joyce was right. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that they put. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. 
Yeah, but yeah, I thought that was a good little tidbit. Also, I wanted to add, we, we were talking about the classic lines, England is mine and it owes me a living. I haven't seen this written about too much as far as like in the classic Smith's books like uh, Mazapedia or Songs That Saved Your Life or mm -hmm. things like that. But I have a copy of Graham Greene's book, England Made Me. And I feel like that had to have been on Morrissey's mind when he made the, the line, England is mine, England made me, England is mine. Because we know that he is a big Graham Greene fan from some of his solo work um, mm -hmm. referencing Brighton Rock. But what really convinced me that he must have been thinking about that was Graham Greene included on like the very first page a quote by Walt Disney where Walt Disney says, the world is mine and it owes me a living. Oh, yeah. I, I did not know that. Yeah. Of all people for Morrissey to draw upon, Walt Disney Walt is not Disney one I would have guessed. Not it, no. No. So, so I, I thought that, like, there's no way that that's a coincidence. Like, Morrissey must have had this book, England Made Me, and he must have seen that line that uh, Graham Greene included at the very beginning of it, the world is mine and it owes me a living. But yeah, I've never seen that touched upon. So it's like maybe I've uns you know unsurfaced new ground in Smithdom, or maybe it never read it, didn't care for the line or whatever. But it's like it feels like it it has to be something that he was reading or looked at or something. Yeah, I mean Morrissey Morrissey tends to do that. You know, he'll he'll pick up like words, phrases, mm -hmm. uh, full like full plots from things he'll admit like he doesn't really care about yeah for sure where it's like um what is it the the joke isn't funny anymore like he got it from some ukrainian film that he'd never seen <laughs> like the picture yeah. of the baby <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah going back to the lyrics this hits on some classic classic smith stuff uh especially just sickness in general or believing that you're ill or believing that you're sick um because mm -hmm. Morrissey kind of thinks he's chronically sick. He's kind of a hypochondriac in that sense, where it's, oh, I'm so sick today. And then, like, the next day, he's, like, perfectly fine. <laughs> uh -huh. But I don't want to throw too many accusations at, at old Maza, but I feel like he's very conveniently sick at times. <laughs> he, he falls ill when there's things he doesn't want to do. Because there's been a lot of occasions, like, in Smith's history where it's like, we're shooting uh, some promo shots today. Where's Morrissey at? And he's like, oh, I can't make it. I'm stuck in bed. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. I can't answer the door <laughs> yeah. either. It's too yeah, much it's trouble. Like, we're all here at this location that we paid for. Like, the photographer's here. Let's do this. Oh, I can't make it. And it's kind mm -hmm. of carried on with his own solo career live of cancellations but I, I definitely get the sense that Morrissey was the kind of kid that would be sick from school once a week and I think like the the implications of still ill point us towards a more all-around feeling of being ill not feeling mm -hmm. right feeling like he doesn't belong definitely like uh, we'll we'll get into this more with what difference does it make, but I've always felt like the idea of like still ill has to do with uh, more of his like sexuality mm -hmm. and obsession, um, where like other people saw him as weird and like just strange, which could right. be construed as ill, especially if uh, 
if you subscribe to like the belief that Morrissey was incredibly yeah. depressed or even had uh even had something mm-hmm. like autism that this would have been seen yeah as an i could definitely see that that outsider part of his mentality as well like am i still different am i still on the outside looking in am i always going to be this way that kind of question as well and then also i really like that it hits again on kind of the jobless morrissey as well where you know england is mine it owes yes. me a living so on one hand, we you could see that in the grand sense where it's like he believes that he should be this big pop star. And then on the other sense, sense you could see it as being like, I am English and this country should take care of me and we should have welfare and I'm going to go sign on to the dole and get my money for not working as well. So he, he, he feels mm-hmm. like it, there's no point in having these pointless jobs or whatever, like he would much rather sign on, get his adult check, and go sit in his bedroom and read books and listen to records. Of course, occasionally he does he does go out, but finds it very very <laughs> nerving. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't always go well for him. But yeah, this is definitely essential Smith as well because from this album, this song stays in the set list longer than any other song on this debut album so it's definitely because there's a couple songs that morrissey kind of like doesn't like eventually or disowns even uh but this is one that definitely has carried on and i'm pretty sure that he will still occasionally play this one live solo as well even to this date Ooh, i would love to see this one live yeah Let's talk about hand. Well, actually, let's briefly mention hand and glove because we had a whole episode mm-hmm. devoted to it, um, and so I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to overstep, but I do feel it is important to mention. This is technically the single version, but not the single version as yeah. well, where they just change the mix a little bit and add a uh, a new start, a new finish. They kind of take out some of the charm and grittiness of the yes. single version, in my opinion, where. The fade-in where it's just so odd because you never ever hear of a fade-in, and I think it's so cool. So you get rid of the fade-in, which makes sense in the album because it wouldn't necessarily probably really make sense to have the fade-in where where this is at in the album. Mm -hmm. Also getting rid of the the harmonica to me is a crime. That You got to have that harmonica solo, the little bit of the uh, love me do callback to the Beatles. So got rid of that. Uh, like I said, I adore Hand and Glove. I see it as kind of a Smith's manifesto, especially because it's especially sad because it's the last song that they ever played as a band as well. It's like self-fulfilling prophecy as far as the lyrics go. Yeah. It's, oh, it's so sad. But also it's, I I would say it is one of the only true, like, Smith's love songs. Yeah, for like, sure. While a lot of the songs deal with love, this is the only, this is one of the few where it is just so earnest, like, I have found this person that makes me feel this way, mm-hmm. and it still ends, like, with, uh, you know, I'll probably never see you again, yeah. but, you know, while we're here and while we've got this, we are going to make the most of it, we have something that they do not have, you know? Yeah, but then that realization that I know my luck too well... And I'll probably never yeah. see it. But it's it's great because it's also 
quintessential Smiths in the sense that it's a happy and sad song at the same time. But mm-hmm. it has both of them. It's got this love that's not like any other love, but then at the same time, it's doomed from the from the beginning. So mm-hmm. it's got that kind of glory and jubilance to it, but then also at the same time, that same self-deprecating realism that you know it's not going to last forever. Just like the Smiths. Yeah. It's going to be shining bright for a bit, but then it's going to burn out just as quick. Other things in regards to this version, um, the drums and the vocals have been pushed to the forefront, and the bass guitar and the guitar are kind of a little further back in the mix. Frankly, I don't think it works quite as well. It's It takes away a lot of that earnestness in an appeal of a more like rock centric mm-hmm. and like radio focused sort of thing which i just don't think suits yeah suits like this song about like i said i feel like there's a there's a loss of grit and charm to it yeah a loss of grit and charm is absolutely <laughs> the the right way to phrase that actually yes. yeah and we get the, cl- uh, the classic uh morrissey little charmer line as well in that song yes. there's also the the theory that the song is about johnny marr which Johnny mm-hmm. hasn't necessarily shot down either. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I I love that when asked about like, especially these first uh, couple singles like Hand in Glove, and um, and this charming man. When Johnny is asked about it to this day, he'll just be like, "Oh, I have no clue. <laughs> that was Morrissey's job." Yeah, I was just making some sweet guitar riffs. <laughs> yeah, but let's move on to what difference does it make. So the third single of the Smiths, like we mentioned, um, cover star was Terrence Stamp from the film The Collector. Then found out that he did not give consent to being on the cover, so they had to shelf all of them, and then it became Morrissey holding the glass of milk. I know in Smith fandom, the original single with Terrence Stamp on the cover is highly, 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 highly sought after uh, collector's item. Uh, the song itself is also a little bit of foreshadowing with the line, uh, I'll jump in front of a flying bullet for you, which kind of mm-hmm. is later seen on There's a Light That Never Goes Out, that romantic death, the dying together or the self-sacrifice to maintain this love, uh, or just even the beauty of dying young as well, where it kind of gets into that James Dean aesthetic as well. Yeah, which Morrissey has talked about, like, oh, you know, I think James Dean is just, you know, he's yeah. an all right actor, he's fine. But I love his life. His life is amazing to it's me. Like, Morrissey, you're obsessed with it. It's all right to just admit it. Yes. Right to admit, because then he's um, also like, oh, he wasn't a great actor or anything, or I don't even like his movies that much. And it's like, all right, Morrissey. Because obviously, like, again, like, if you've seen Rebel Without a Cause, you could definitely see him taking the gun shootout at the end and incorporating it into this song as well. Not, not even, not just to mention that, but also stretch out and wait. Uh, uh, a very popular theory is that it's a retelling of rebel without ah. a cause, or at least a part of it similar to this night is yeah. open. My eyes is for, a taste I've of never honey. considered that. And I'm gonna have to go listen back to it and, and check that out. Yeah. There's that whole bit about like, you know, will the world end in the daytime? Uh-huh. I really don't know. And uh, 
that's a conversation that Salmoneo's character has with uh that's right with James yeah Dean. i'll have to go back but yeah i i think he might have been like he gets i think he gets a tad bit embarrassed about how obsessed he gets with certain things so then he has to like backtrack and downplay it <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's like we know yeah. that you love the new york dolls and he's like no they're okay <laughs> so all yeah. right sure morrissey uh, also, another classic line, I stole and I lied. Why? Because you asked me to. Um, this is kind of one of the very first mm-hmm. introductions of Morrissey's infatuation with thieves and crime as well, which definitely mm-hmm. comes up a lot more in his lyrics after this album. Um, I don't want to... Uh, I, I don't want to delve too heavily into like what I think about this song, but I will say that the lyrical connotations of now you know the truth about me you won't see mm-hmm. me anymore uh it definitely uh spurred a lot more conversation into the sexuality of morrissey does he mean uh does he just mean like you know generally mm-hmm. these things about me or is he referring right. to his celibacy or <laughs> maybe to uh, his being open to more than just yeah. heterosexuality. Because obviously is, he's never the like... story here? The only label sexually he's ever put on himself is celibacy. So he's never come out and said, I'm bisexual or pansexual, straight or gay, obviously. So it's always been yeah. that question mark. But that could even be, you know, the question mark. Now that you know that I am this question mark of a person, will you feel the same way about me? Mm-hmm. That I don't yeah. fit into this normal dominant culture box. For as much as I love this song too, I will say if there is like one example of it was done better elsewhere. Yeah, agreed. it's this song. This song I think works a lot better with uh, the Peel mm-hmm. session and Hot Fall of Hollow. Um, it just feels a little bit overproduced yeah. here. But you do also get some of like Morrissey's interesting like bbc sound effects that he brings back uh time and time again throughout yeah the, career. Uh, the applause on no apologies is great mm-hmm. love that part um i definitely agree as well that the uh half full of hollow version is the definitive what difference does it make in my opinion as well uh this is also another song that morrissey's kind of soured on as time has gone gone by um, and I read that it stems from him feeling like the song wasn't a worthy follow-up to this charming man. That they were really into the idea that each single should show improvement and the band getting better. And he feels like this song mm-hmm. was not up to this charming man's level. But then again, sorry to tell you, Moz, but like not many songs in the history of songs are going <laughs> to necessarily be up to that level. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's very true. Um, it feels a bit unfair on what difference does it make to, to hold that standard to it. Yeah. I I mean, especially of the singles, um, of the singles, what difference does it make is probably the, the earliest written. Yeah, that's right. That it was a, an early composition for them as well. So it hasn't aged as well for Morrissey, but I would still consider this to be a pretty quintessential yeah. Smith's track. No, absolutely. Uh, I think it also does something that we see a lot with Morrissey's titles is that he will take a common phrase and then he will use that as a title and kind of put his own spin on it. 
So, like, mm-hmm. instead of this idea of, like, flippancy of, like, what difference does it make? You know, he's using it in a very earnest sense of what difference really yeah. does it make? You know, he's taking a rhetorical question and actually answering it. Yes, <laughs> it makes none. <laughs> Um, Which I guess also points out the ridiculousness of sometimes asking rhetorical questions. Like, oh, what difference does it make? And he actually says the answer to that. It makes none. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Which, again, I, I feel like, like we've talked about the, the Smiths and humor. I feel like this is also kind of a humorous song when you think about what difference does it make? It makes none. Yes. So I don't owe you anything. I, th- I believe this song was originally penned for Sandy Shaw. And the fact that yeah, the Smiths, uh, the fact that the Smiths decided to record a version of it is just an extra little bonus on top, you know. Yeah, which you, I guess you can also kind of see how they maybe felt about the song, giving the track listing that it's the next to last song, mm-hmm. so not necessarily putting it at the front of the album, not having it close out the album. I know this is another song that that Morrissey has kind of disowned that he doesn't like it a lot now. Mm-hmm. I think this is an underrated gem. I think it's a good song. Uh, it hits on some of the themes again as this charming man where it has the line about going out tonight mm-hmm. and not specifically not wanting to go out tonight that I don't owe you having to go out because you've done nice things for me. Yeah. Uh, again, this is also kind of one of those interesting plays on gender roles as well to where it's it's the guy saying, I don't owe you anything just because... You've been nice to me just because you've bought me some stolen wine. I love that line as well, bought on stolen wine. Very interesting. But yeah, this idea that just because someone's nice to us or just because somebody is showing us attention doesn't necessarily mean we owe them anything. No. I I, I love, if I could pick out one line from this song, I would love the, I, I love the, did I really walk home this way just to hear you say, I don't want to go out tonight. Um, So good. Because I I think that kind of establishes some of the mythos of Morrissey that we might have talked about in in the previous episode to this one about like, you know, the Smiths only happened because he spent one too many times walking home in the rain. rain, Yes. Definitely can see that. Uh, one last tidbit about the song. Apparently, it almost made Mike Joyce cry when they played it live one time. I <laughs> I would believe that, actually. Yeah. Mike Joyce can kind of look intimidating and a little scary, but he is absolutely, like, he is absolutely a crier, you know? Yeah, I could see it. Yeah. Um, Another thing about this song, real fast, is Sandy Shaw did her uh, did her own version of it. It is on the B side to the Sandy Shaw version of uh, Hand, Hand and Glove, Glove yeah. along with Jean. And I think it does work better as a as a Sandy Shaw song, even though she it, wasn't too keen on it either. No. I think it does work better as a Sandy Shaw song. It fits, and it's a. Uh, it- Partially a dream come true for Morrissey and Marm because they set out to write a song for Sandy Shaw. Mm-hmm. They did it. All right. Well, let's move on to the final track of this album then, Suffer Little Children. The big controversy with this one, they definitely um, definitely got a lot of media attention for this one. And 
in a roundabout way, it kind of worked out for them where it started off uh, negatively, where it was even the album was being pulled from the shelves of like major uh, stalkers like Woolworth and um, Boots and stuff like that. But yeah, the song about the Moore's murders, uh, obviously when you're talking about kids that are being abducted and murdered, it's going to maybe be controversial. Obviously the controversy about this one is like, oh, they're exploiting it for their own gain or this or that. But at the same time, you take a step back and the controversy is so silly because obviously this song comes from a place of uh, really respecting the victims and feeling terrible about what happened and feeling that pain and fear that was prevalent in mid-60s Manchester when these abductions were taking place. So obviously it hit hit close to home uh, for Morrissey. Yeah. I think... um, I think that this song is, like... It is the entire tone of, like, the of the album like there's this Mm -hmm. under underlying darkness to almost everything and at this track you know you it all finally comes to light like Mm -hmm. this this mental scarring that has uh sat festering inside morrissey for the past 20 24 years you know Mm -hmm. um it's it's a lot and yeah. I think it also points towards like what a lot of what they'll cover on the next album as well. This idea of like, oh Manchester, so much to answer for. Yeah, definitely. Looking at that dark side of Manchester, what was lying underneath? Because as Morrissey said, it was like during the mid sixties, this was so prevalent to where he grew up that like it dominated conversation. That was it was impossible to escape this darkness that was kind of lingering on the streets. I also think the subject matter of Ian Brady and Myra Henley are interesting as well, because Myra Henley is almost the antithesis of the Morrissey archetypal, uh, strong Northern feminist icon, uh, where she instead says what he has done, I have done, where he has gone, I have gone, that she's not that strong Manchester head of the household matriarch that he seems to bond over so much where he really likes these strong female characters. And she actually shows like this obviously weak female character that goes and does these horrible, horrible crimes because the man that she loves told her to. So Mm -hmm. I feel like she's almost this antithesis of that strong character that Morrissey seems to admire so much with these more kitchen sink northern icons you didn't often have like singers especially people that were forthright in saying i am a pop singer Mm -hmm. uh really come out with condemnations uh of popular figures in songs and like you had like these famous uh famous uh like relationship uh, duos and crime before typically they were more like were looked up mm-hmm. to uh like the craze oh yes the the craze for example yeah. or bonnie and clyde yeah of course like the almost sort of folk heroes yeah morrissey was not like trying to like immortalize them 
in song because he loved them. No. Yeah. Like I think if anything he was trying to immortalize the the deaths, the kids that died and maybe have mm. their spirit live on in the song since they were taken so young. So when you look at it that way, it's a, it's a pretty heartfelt message because I feel like he's really trying to give life to the victims a little bit. Um, yeah. And that was seen eventually and kind of what killed off the controversy was Morrissey ended up befriending one of the children's mothers, uh, Leslie Ann's mother, who's listed in the song. And Morrissey kind of becomes a friend to her and he even says at one point he gave her like a hundred pounds just randomly like and her her <laughs> eyes just like welled up like with tears so it seemed like they eventually had a pretty uh close relationship and she was even thanked on the linear notes of meet his murder so i think once they kind of got that seal of approval from one of the victim's mothers where it's like hey yeah i've met these people and they're obviously honoring the victims of this it definitely died down yeah, once the once the son didn't have anything to complain about. Yeah, anymore. exactly. So uh, it's actually kind of interesting looking at this being a controversy comparatively to like later Morrissey controversies, where you take you look at this song mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, there's really not anything <laughs> to look too negatively upon about it. Uh, I also think this song is interesting because there's a play on the flowers as well. Um, where it's talking about the Moors and there's that flower imagery, but for the very first time, instead of flowers being associated with life and love and beauty and all this, the, the flowers are associated with death, where he's talking about the, uh, the lilacs and the Moors that underneath them where these kids are buried. So definitely a different take on the flower imagery of the Smiths. Also, one last tidbit. Uh, I read that originally this song was going to be more of a piano-driven track. Johnny Marr had included a music box in it in the background and also audio clips of kids playing outside. (laughs) And they're like, all right, this is way too morbid and on the nose. We have to get rid of the kids playing outside, (laughs) which is definitely probably a good call. (laughs) one of the earliest uh, Smith's recordings. We have an episode about it as well. And it, it features all of those elements. But I think when you finally arrive at this point in the album and, you know, the song fades out, even though, you know, we talked initially about like, this album wasn't quite what the Smiths had hoped for, but it was still a landmark. Just even going through it like you and I, it really does feel like, this large emotional journey that you've really experienced so much. It's no wonder that even just with one album, three singles under their belt, the Smiths were considered one of the most life affirming and one of the most interesting bands to have uh, come to the surface in the early eighties. Absolutely. Well put. Yeah. That's a, that's a good epilogue to it. Well, I I guess then I'm not going to try to put it any better than that. Let's move on to the next section. Welcome back to the playlist portion of the show. If you aren't familiar, 
this section of the show is dedicated to us putting together something that you might like to listen to. Uh, we have a Spotify page with, uh, with playlists that we add and update weekly for, uh, for each episode. So today we'll probably add in a few songs from the Smith's debut album. And then, uh, three, excuse me, three songs, not three thongs, um, (laughs) from, from each of us, what we think that you would enjoy. All right. So Austin, let's get our Smith songs taken care of. What do you think we should include? We've got we've got four slots here for uh, for Mazer and the boys. I think uh, as we talked about, still ill definitely mm-hmm. needs to be included in that. Yes, agreed. Uh, I think we can rule out songs that were singles. So what difference does it make? This charming man, hand in glove stick to mm-hmm. songs that are strictly on the album as you talked about as far as it being very impactful closer things suffer little children should probably be on there yes yeah absolutely um i think uh in terms of like us talking about like kind of how the album feels you've got everything now oh, yeah. is is a good pick for this. And then, Ooh, either pretty girls make graves or hand that rocks the cradle. I feel like we should go hand that rocks the cradle just because I actually like pretty girls make graves more, but I feel like it's fitting for this because it is one of the original first two songs that they wrote, but also they almost Mm -hmm. titled the album, the hand that rocks the cradle. Yes, that's right. I forgot about that. So almost was the debut album. Almost was. Um, perfect. Then we will make sure to add those four to the playlist. Now, Austin, what have you got for us? All right. So for my songs, I'm going to have to do some self-promotion. Please. Do, do my band, Don't Get Lemon. Uh, our latest single is titled Blow Up. I talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, we are actually releasing a music video for it this upcoming Tuesday. And it is based off of the movie that we talked about, Blow Up, from the 60s. So it's got a swinging 60s vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so excited for that. It's going to be debuting on postpunk.com on Tuesday. I'm not sure what time at some point so definitely gonna have to go self-promotion uh with that one uh my second song i'm going to do um there's a band actually from where you live because you live in salt lake city right yes well i live in provo but it's practically you know same area close close to salt lake city so there's a band called body of leaves Um, yeah my band, Don't Get Lemon, we played a show with them last summer at Kilby Court in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And they blew me away. They were so good. And they just released their debut album this past week. So I'm going to include the song Heat Mapping by them. All right. Heat Mapping. Yeah. And then last song, um, sticking with the Don't Get Lemon Connections. We are 
playing some shows at the end of this month, a little run of Texas shows where we're playing Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston. And we're going with a band from Austin called Holy Wire that we're friends with. Very, very good synth pop. Um, if you've ever heard the band Nation of Language, it's very similar in vein to that, uh, where it's kind of a bit of a throwback to like uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, that kind of early 80s synth pop. The band is called Holy Wire, and the song is called Phantom Nihilism. Phantom Nihilism. Yeah. All right. That's a, that's a good name. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that is kind of uh, Smith's-esque, as well as far as the themes of of the dark underbelly of the self-title. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Well, I've got a few suggestions for you all as well. So, um, first off, um, I would love to profess my absolute adoration for uh, for the artist known as the Anchoress. She, uh, her name is Catherine Ann Davies, um, and she released two very, very good albums. One of which I believe in twenty twenty one or early twenty twenty two was universally. Uh, universally acclaimed as like an um, this amazing dark album but she just recently released a uh a cover of new order's bizarre love triangle which really brings out a lot of like darkness in the song which i think ooh it's so good uh another one that i think kind of fits within this like uh smith's sort of uh feel is uh, a song by a group called The Format off of their very first ever release. It's called At The Wake, and it's a piano and string-driven track, um, but it's all about how how you can't say goodbye to someone. You feel like you have something like left behind, and so you're literally like at their wake trying to process all of these emotions. Um I, and I, I love the song. It's very good. I haven't good. listened to the format in ages, but I used I love I used format. to love Dog Problems. I haven't listened to that first oh. one in a long time. <laughs> dog Problems is fantastic. Yeah. I I I believe that Dog Problems is the the pet sounds of the of the naughties. That makes sense. I could see that. It's definitely uh it's definitely a great album to like sing along to the entire time. Oh, yeah, because you've got, like, all of the different vocal harmonies, but then all of the other, like, little bobs and whistles. Yeah. Um, Anyways, I'm getting off track (laughs) here. Um, And going back to what uh, you were saying earlier in the show, all right, maybe you won't include a suede song, but you know what? I'm going to. (laughs) Um, One thing that I've always loved about the sort of suede Smith's connection is that both of their debut albums start off with drums before uh, a guitar line and a vocal line uh, are introduced. That's true, it's so young. And, yeah. then, and then midway through, you've got this sort of piano section as well that kind of adds this sort of art, uh, artistic effect. I love both of those groups. So Young is... Uh, is a very similar thing for me as Real Around the Fountain, where it is just such a good 
introductory track to the world of suede. I could definitely agree with that. So young and so gone. Yes. All right. Um, but those are my three. So again, you can find this, uh, this playlist of songs, 10 songs under Smith cyclopedia episode 13 on Spotify. And you can find it right now. Other things that you can find right now, our next section, which is mail. All right, everyone, welcome back to our sort of mailbag section of the show, if you will. If you'd like to write into the show, we very much appreciate it. And you can do so by either contacting us through uh, our Instagram and TikTok, which is at smithcyclopedia, or emailing us at smithcyclopedia at gmail.com. So first off, I feel like I want to address everybody that may be listening for the first time today. Hello. Hi. On On our TikTok page we actually had one of our videos get quite a lot of traction, which I'm very, very proud of. I'm very happy with. Uh, A lot of new people are following along with the show. So I just want to say, hi, how's it going? In addition to, uh, to that, we've been getting a lot of nice messages from people saying like, uh, the show is something that is very cool. I love the idea of it. Um, and I've never seen anybody do this before. You've never seen anybody do this before because <laughs> I did this before and I didn't publicize Lesson it. Lesson learned. Um, <laughs> yes. So now I'm doing it. And I'm actually like, you know, putting in effort and, you know, making posts and whatever. Reaching out through Instagram uh, is how Austin actually got in contact with us. And uh, one of our previous guests uh, wrote in, just this morning. Uh, this is uh, Elise Sutar, uh, who said, Hi, I just listened to the new episode, and I just to put it out there uh, for the mailbag suggestions. If you ever need a guest for the Smiths and a bunch of films they reference episode, uh, then I would love to come back. And she says, I have seen a taste of honey <laughs> an ungodly number of times uh, and have very intense opinions about it, which I believe makes me qualified right off the bat. I think for this one, I almost w- would want to get, like, a ton of different people, you know? That way, I'm not, like, forcing someone to watch, like, all of the movies uh, that the Smiths there's... that the Smiths reference. Maybe just one yeah, episode on Sheila Delaney. so many in fact. that Morrissey pulls from that, yeah, I would agree that it would be a bit overwhelming to jump into that much uh, kitchen sink realism in one go. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, I guess you'd have to watch every episode of Coronation Street as well. And who has time for that? You even have to jump into some EastEnders as well. He's also obsessed with like a a carry on, (laughs) which has loads and loads of episodes as well. (laughs) Oh, yes. I forgot about that. Um, But yes, uh, in addition to writing to the show to say like, oh, you know, I love this or that please suggest ideas to us because ultimately, you know, we are working with only about five years of, uh, five years 
of material to just go over and over again. And so we really want to be able to have episodes where we can sink our claws into a specific topic, whether that's like people that influence the Smiths that were influenced by the Smiths or uh, like the Smiths relationship with film and TV or like what they appear in later on. I want to hear about all of that stuff. Number one, because I mean, I'm the host, but more importantly, because I'm a Smith obsessive and I want to learn all of that, you know? I definitely feel like glam rock could be its entire own episode. Just talking about Bowie and T-Rex and Roxy music. I would love that. Um, Cause I also love, I, I love glam rock so much. Um, I was at this, uh, I was at this event uh, the other day and uh, one of my friends decided to make like a short little documentary about like me trying to like uh, break into the music scene, you know, uh, do what I do and whatever. And his, uh, his professor afterwards like came up to me and said like, I loved seeing you on screen <laughs> because I knew right away that you would love David Bowie. <laughs> Just knew right off the bat. <laughs> Just knew. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think that's fantastic. If, if you can recognize, uh, if you can recognize Bowie disciples, Smith's disciples, whatever. Yeah. I feel that's I feel like automatically if you're a fan of the Smiths, and suede it's it's got to be assumed that you're coming from the altar of bowie <laughs> yes it, it must be assumed i have i have drunk his blood and whatever <laughs> yeah. um no i've just i've just listened to to ziggy stardust uh an unfathomable amount of times and you know have spent a lot of time trying to figure out whatever the heck <laughs> is going on in well, low. Well, to be fair, probably uh, Bowie circuit like 76, I think he thought people were drinking his blood. <laughs> <laughs> there's a... This is tangential, but there's this one great uh, Bowie quote, I think on Conan O'Brien, where he's talking about like the mid-70s and whatever and Conan says like uh oh, you know, how how was that? And Bowie says, oh, it was a great time. And Conan says, really? What happened? And Bowie says, I don't know. That's just what people have right. told me about don't it. Don't remember me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do not remember. He, I was yeah, on so much cocaine. He doesn't remember recording any of Station to Station. <laughs> He's like, I listened back and it's pretty good, but I don't remember doing that. <laughs> uh, I love it. Anyways, um, so once again, uh, you can write into the show at smithcyclopedia at gmail.com or by finding us on our social media platforms. You can also leave us a five-star review, if you so please, uh, on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, I believe you can just do it in-app. You can do it right now as we're speaking for the minute and 30 seconds that are left of the show. Um, Austin... Do you have any final words for uh, for the Disciples today? I would say that the debut album is kind of... How should I put this? It's overrated and underrated at the same time. Uh, that's my final word. That On one hand, it's maybe <laughs> is not Is that not every Smith's album, though? Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily 
the uh, bombastic, great debut album that captures the hearts and minds forever, kind of um, like we'd mentioned how like the Stone Roses self-titled is like the end all be all for the Stone Roses. At the same point, I feel like since it isn't that, it gets overlooked a little bit. And there are definitely a lot of hidden gem uh, songs on the album that sometimes get overlooked. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree totally. Um, I think it is definitely... It's everything that I love, actually, about a debut album is that... It has flaws. It shows you... <laughs> yeah, it has flaws, but you also see, like, this group of people trying to do something that is potentially greater than them mm-hmm. themselves. And I love that. I love the ambition debut album, flawed as it is. Yes, self-belief to the point where the talent hasn't necessarily totally caught up yet, but there's so much potential there, and it's still brilliant. Yes, absolutely. But that's everything that I have. Uh, what do you say we uh, we boot this one home? Sounds good. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening. Keep listening to The Smiths, and... You know, maybe next episode we'll cover something wild. Bye bye.